Welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for December 8th, 2023. This is the show where we get together every Friday afternoon and talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation. Friday afternoon, I guess, for us East Coast people, Friday sometime for the rest of you. Um, and uh, it's uh, this is I'm Bob Ambrogi. I write the blog Law Sites and have the uh, podcast Law Next. And uh, our panelists today are who you see before you and uh, we'll go around and introduce ourselves. Steve, you want to kick it off? Sure. I'm Steve Embry. I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads and I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, where it's a nice warm day today for a change. So good to see everybody. All right. And Nikki. My name is Nikki Black. I'm in Rochester, New York. It's not a nice warm day. Um, I <laughs> made me really sad. Um, I Sorry. <laughs> I'm of SME and external education at my case in law pay. I write legal tech columns for ABA journal above the law and the daily record. And I also oversee and write our, um, the benchmark reports at my case and law pay and also our legal industry survey report. All right. And, uh, Victor. Hi everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I am assistant managing editor for the ABA journal covering business of business of law and technology. I am, I'm in Chicago and actually it's unseasonably warm here. It's a little unsettling, honestly. Um, of course my son's reaction was, Oh, can we go outside today? So, yeah. um, good to see he's not worried about the long-term implications of climate change. Just wants to go outside and play. So. <laughs> All right. And a Christmas tree less Joe. Yeah. Joe Patrice from Buffalo. I, uh, am thinking like a lawyer podcast. I am yeah, it's it is warm here. Uh, it's not super hot, but it's like fifty degrees or something like that. That's not bad here in just outside of New York. The weird thing is, I just came from Miami and uh, where I was at this TLTF summit, which I'll talk about. But one of the days in Miami, it was it was really kind of cold. It was like in the sixties, but it felt even colder. The wind was blowing, and I had a sweater on walking outside. It was kind of chilly, oddly enough. But uh, didn't feel cold at all when I stepped off. The, I mean. It, Compared to what I felt when I stepped off the plane in Boston last night, it felt cold again. Uh, anyway, well, maybe I'll, I'll kick off with this uh, just because there wasn't a whole lot of legal tech news this week, or at least we didn't all report a whole lot of legal tech news this week. It, it might have been happening, but maybe we were all busy with other stuff. Uh, but we have some to talk about. But uh, yeah, I was I spent this past week at the TLTF summit. Uh, Stephanie Wilkins, who's usually on the show, was there as well. Stephanie couldn't be with us today, um, and uh, which uh, means we effectively uh, doubled our uh, press coverage of this event from last year when I was the only reporter there. Stephanie was there. There are actually a couple of other people um, who were there kind of in the, in the media guys this year. Uh, but this is the, the summit that's put on by the Legal Tech Fund, which is a VC fund devoted to legal tech funding. And this is the second year they did it. Uh, last year, I wrote a really glowing review of this summit. I called it like the Soros event of, of legal tech. Uh, it, it was um, a, a very intimate uh unique get together of investors of legal tech startups of more established founders of legal tech companies some people from kind of law firm innovation corporate legal academia um and uh, i kind of wondered whether they'd be able to do it again this year or replicate it again because it was so unique it was such a wonderful conference last year 
Uh, and this year they more than doubled the size of it, um, which was not to say it's huge because last year was, I think, around 200. This year was a little over 400. Uh, very different venue this year. Last year it was right in downtown Miami in a kind of a high rise with a nice view out over the bay. This year it was up in Aventura, north of Miami, on a kind of a sprawling grounds that uh, uh, Zach Zach Posner, the uh, the founder of uh, the Legal Tech Funds, kind of analogized to the the Stanford campus. If you ever walked around there, and it is a little bit like that, and and. He said that was by design. It was interesting that that Zach got up to give the opening of of this conference. Uh, and I have to say, as a side note, uh, in sort of in kudos to to Zach, maybe. Uh, whereas some uh, conference uh, organizers will get up and talk at length uh, to introduce the conference, Zach is is a is a man of few words. <laughs> Uh, and gets up and says a few words and then makes way for the other other speakers and panelists, which is kind of a nice thing. But what he did say is that uh, he he alluded to the writer Jim Collins, who talks about something called who luck, uh, which is the sort of the, the luck of, of who you encounter and, and uh, have develop uh, conversations with and potentially relationships with. And he said he wanted this conference to be all about making who luck happen. Uh, he uh, literally, in his uh, opening remarks, said, uh, I encourage everybody to skip a session or skip every single session uh, and just take a walk with somebody or sit and talk to somebody. Uh, and so that's the kind of conference it is. It's, it's a really, it's a unique conference in the sense that, as, as I said, it's, first of all, it's one of the only conferences that kind of openly brings together the investor community as part of the conference. I mean, I know that if you go to ILTA or you go to Legal Week or, or you go to ABA Tech Show, there are investors there who are kind of wandering in the shadows, checking out some of the products and whatever else. But at this conference, they're out there talking, participating, being part of the panels. Uh, and that's something you don't get to see a lot. Um, and it's also one of the few conferences you go to where there's there's no sales going on here. There's no exhibit hall. Uh, there are no sponsors per se. I guess there are actually some sponsors because you see some logos around. But but there's nowhere where they're talking about themselves other than in, in designated pitch competitions. There is like a, a whole startup pitch competition that goes on through the conference where every day they do have a couple of different sessions of, of, of startups giving pitches and their winners announced at the end of it all. Um, but, uh, and, and there's also, it's like a, a who's who of kind of the, the legal tech world in a sense. I mean, I was, I was, you know, uh, uh, sort of grimly thinking about, you know, if somebody dropped a bomb on the uh, JW Marriott Aventura right now, the half the legal tech world would be, would be wiped out. Uh, because there were uh, a lot of leaders of a lot of companies uh, and a lot of big names there, a lot of in investors, a lot of, again, people from academics who run innovation institutes and in law. Um, so I, it, it, I'm still, I haven't written anything yet. I got I want to write something up about it, but um, you know, I think they've effectively done a good job of, of uh, doing again the second year what they did the first year, maybe a little bit less of an intimate feel to it, but still that sort of uh, air of, of spontaneous, fascinating conversations with people involved in, 
in what's coming in legal tech, not just talk about what's happening now, but really what's coming down the pike. So uh, for all of you who couldn't go, hope you can try and make it again next year. Was that the one that you got invited to? Um... Like uh, and, and then you held it over our heads for the whole year. Or was that was that the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the one. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Was, yeah, last year. Last year, I was the only media person invited to it for some reason, um, and it's all it's all off the record. Also, so it's it's uh, what what Chatham House rules or whatever they call that, uh, where where you know you're you're not supposed to quote anybody. Uh, you're not supposed to really sort of substantively talk about anything anybody says, um, and. I, <sighs> I like that, although I can't say that I, I, you've, I heard anybody say anything that they wouldn't have said in any other panel anywhere else. It, it didn't, at least certainly not on any, on any on any panel. Maybe the offline conversations were different, of course, but um, the, the panels themselves were, you know, more or less the same stuff you'd hear anywhere and people talking about the same stuff. Uh, but some good presentations. And Dan Katz kicked it all off with a kind of the, an opening program. Uh, I think it was 160 slides or something like that in like 20 minutes. <laughs> he has the ability to do that rapid fire slide delivery, but basically on the whole sort of history and state of generative AI and legal. And it was a pretty fascinating uh, presentation. As a matter of fact, I should get, I can, if I can find the link, I'll put it in the chat. He posted his slides. Oh, here they are. I'll drop them in the chat at some point. Um, but uh, anyway, that, that's, I wish, I wish Stephanie was here because I would have loved to hear her her thoughts on it, um, uh, and, and maybe next week we can uh, talk a little bit more about it. But uh, anyway, that was that was my week, uh, and uh, hopefully they they do it again next year. We'll see. Um, so from there, <laughs> uh, what else is happening uh, this week? Uh, well, actually, uh, Nikki, you know, you, uh, I know we, Nikki and I just in the green room went back and forth a little bit about talking about the story, but you wrote about uh, kind of a, a little bit of an overview on Above the Law about AI ethics. And it was actually something that was being talked a lot about at this conference that I was at. Uh, with a, I think at the conference, they were talking about it with somewhat of a, from a, 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 a skeptical viewpoint about whether there should be specific AI you know, a regulation directed at the lawyer's use, right? Any legal legal regulation directed at lawyer's use of AI, and they're talking about some of the court rules that have been coming down. But what did you uh, what did you uh, find this week? Uh, I wrote it above the law about the intersection of the ethics guidance coming down and the major, you know, companies announcing a public release of their integrated generative AI tools. So Thomson Reuters, LexisNexis, and then California issuing their opinion. The Florida proposed opinion has been released. Uh, so I just sort of talked about the convergence of these two things, sort of being indicative of uh, sort of the stage as it just sort of the coming tidal wave, I guess, if you will. It's here. I feel like the tidal wave has arrived. And uh, I, I just think it's notable that those things kind of happened at the same time. But in terms of is the ethics guidance needed? I don't think that it's technically needed. I don't think that, I think that the uh, opinions that are already out there, I think that the rules and the comments to the rules are more than sufficient to cover this technology, but I think that it is necessary in the current climate 
to get lawyer to give lawyers a security blanket to kind of hold on to their blankie. So they're like, oh, there's guidance and it says I can do this. So it's okay. You know, so it kind of gets them over the hurdle of using this technology that they really want to use. I, you know, I think that there is this thirst for this technology. So I don't think it's technically needed, but I think practically speaking, it's necessary in order to kind of uh, usher this into the firms so that they don't aren't um, don't refrain from allowing their uh, employees and other lawyer and lawyers, whatever the case, however you want to call. By the way, what do you call everyone who is in a firm? What do you call them? Like maybe people in the comments can let me know because you've got the partners. I always struggle with this partners. They're not employees. Then you've got the legal professionals. You've got the associates who are lawyers. What do you, what's a blanket term for everyone who's in a firm? There's members. Un for the unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but so I never have like a term for that, but I usher it out into the, um, into their, who, who is using for a while. Someone is using affiliated professionals, but that, that, that's for, that's sort of the, it, that doesn't encompass everybody. So that doesn't answer your question either, but I can't, I've never been able to think of an umbrella term for everyone that is inside of a law firm that works in it in one capacity or another. And employees but, doesn't work because technically the lawyers aren't employees. Right. Right. It's really challenging. We're going to good ones in the comments though, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> but just to like close my point out in one sentence, I think that it's necessary to usher in, uh, to usher it for the, the attorneys to have this available to them so that they can roll it onto the, into their firm with confidence that they're not violating ethical obligations because they have this guidance or roadmap, if you will, that tells them what they can and can't do and what they have to look for when they roll it out. So I thought that was interesting. And then I have a backup story if you need it. I don't know if we're going to that. <laughs> Do we look needy here? Um, <laughs> no, you know, it was, it, what, I mean, the, I mean, the stuff that you outlined that, that, that came out of this ethics committee, again, is, is like the stuff we all know already. I mean, that, that, that the ethics of rules already require of lawyers. I mean, maybe some lawyers somehow need it applied specifically to AI, but duty of confidentiality, duty to supervise, duty of tech competence. I mean, this applies to the use of any kind of technology, not specifically to AI. Uh, one thing I thought that was interesting was the part about charging for work produced by generative AI, uh, and which uh, the, the way you wrote it up here, it says lawyers may charge for the time spent creating, refining, and reviewing generative AI outputs, but must not charge for the time saved by using generative AI. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because what happens if, if a lawyer is, is charging on a flat fee or, or value-based basis where effectively they might be charging for the time saved by using AI in setting a flat fee or a value-based fee? In other words, if, if they're, if they say, you know, I'm going to do a, a will for the for X dollars and the reason and part of the reason I'm able to charge that for the will is because I'm using AI to help me save time in creating that will. Are they not able somehow to, to, to set a flat fee around that? I, I don't know if that's even a question that makes sense, but it seems like uh, it seems like a, 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 a gray area, at least in terms of setting fees. Around the, this. There is the, the ethical rule that can't recite it verbatim, but it's you're not to charge an unreasonable fee. Uh, I don't know if it if it also goes relates that to time or or whatever, but I, I do know that there is a 
ethical rule that, that talks about the reasonableness of fees. But yeah, I guess I that would kind of, kind of be the issue you're sort of getting at. But. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I don't know if it's standard in the industry, but like last time I used a lawyer, I got like an itemized list of like what was charged. Like you know, they charged this for the filing, this for the um, drafting the complaint, the, 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 the petition and this. So, I mean, I assume as long as you don't put on there, I charge this much for the time I saved by using generative AI, then I, I assume that'd be fine. Well, and I, I, to me, it seems akin to when online legal research showed up on the scene, right? You're no longer opening books, going through all the books, getting all this rendering of query, and then you're, you already have the cases in front of you where you would have spent all this time just sort of sifting through all the books and trying to follow that path. So in, in my mind, it's a lot like that. You are using technology to get you quicker to the analysis part. And with legal research, we didn't say, well, we would have spent five hours in the books before we started this analysis. So we're going to tack five hours on and you shouldn't be doing the same thing here. But I think the way that you phrased it is really interesting, Bob, and I hadn't thought of it that way, which is, um, and I think it was addressed in the comments, uh, someone, uh, Matthew said value-based billing and other alternative billing models decouple time from money, so it's fine. And there seems to be a little bit of a debate about that, but um, I, th that's how I think of it. So, and, and the other thing that I, I think will be interesting is when you can use generative AI to apply it towards your firm's data to better predict how much, uh, what your flat fee should be so that you'll still be making money, but can undercut your competitors. That's where I think we have that whole billable hour possibly being upended coming in. So I'm super excited about it. Not necessarily about that, the opinion, but about sort of the potential of <laughs> the potential there. Well, no one, I mean, people don't usually question uh, plaintiff, plaintiff lawyers' contingency fees. It, it is what it is. And nobody says, well, wait a minute, you took a, I guess you, in some of the class action approval things, you get into this, but a typical, like a personal injury case, nobody says, well, you, you took a third of the recovery, but it only took you, you know, two phone calls. So therefore, you should get less. Sometimes in criminal <clears throat> cases, people will, if there's a quick plea and they took a $10,000 retainer, they will, out of feeling, they'll feel ethically bound to return some of it. I know people that did that when I was practicing. So <laughs> sometimes go. they'll do that, but I don't know what that's going to look like in reality, but what if you're doing it? Well, you know, the, yeah, you know, it's interesting, the value-based and flat fee stuff, which, you know, we, we're entering like year 300 of the legal profession saying that that's just around the corner, but you know, this does raise an interesting question. If AI is the sort of technology that is capable of doing this uh, and making these uh, legal work so efficient, is it going to become one of those situations where firms flock finally flock to that kind of billing so that they can get some kind of, you know, profit off of the AI situation? Because if they keep with the billable hour and AI uh, pairs that down to nothing, uh, it's, you know, hard to pay salaries wouldn't be that. And it's, yes, relatedly, it's also could be the end of the whole leverage model in law firms that have made so many, particularly big law firms and big law firm partners quite wealthy. You don't need three associates to do stuff. You can just ask ChatGPT to do it. Yep. 
Well, we're on the topic of wealthy lawyers. It's not exactly a tech topic, but Joe, there's been some news in that regard this week, right? Yeah. So I'm, uh, I, I work at Above the Law, so I haven't you done do. anything. I, I haven't done anything to talk about raises and bonuses for a couple weeks now. I live in that. I live in a world where that's all that's happening to me. But I did. <laughs> So I didn't really have a tech story, but I did start thinking about the tech implications of it. And I think this is a, we had kind of already were getting into it. Uh, what does, what happens with these associate compensation and the big money going into there with the advances that we're having? Uh, there's a few angles that I thought were interesting to this. One, uh, one argument I got into over social media was I had been fairly adamant that the 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 number looks big uh, when you look at it in isolation that a first year associate's going to make you know two hundred whatever, but when you adjust for inflation back to the beginning of my career, it's pretty much the same. Uh, the one twenty five I got uh, my first year is about what this is worth today. Uh, so it's inflation explains a lot of that. But uh, Professor Orn Kerr made a point that. If you abstract beyond that, uh, go beyond that 125 when I came in uh, to the 80s, and they would adjust from where people were getting paid in the 80s, uh, it's nowhere close. It would be uh, they'd be they'd be making adjusted for inflation like 150 now. Uh, and so when you what we talked started talking about was is there in addition to the inflation issue has there been such a noticeable and tangible increase in the productivity and value of lawyers uh that justifies this increased pay and we both kind of conceded uh, concluded that there was uh and i think that does speak to where technology is uh the a lawyer is more valuable not just because they can do things faster but the level to which things like online uh, you know legal research online uh, legal research and so on have made the ability to be a, a, a lawyer better. Uh, you are less likely to screw things up, less likely to miss stuff, so on and so forth. Uh, so it's not just that it was time-saving, it actually made you a better attorney. Uh, and that is part of the reason why people get... Oops, you just got cut off, Joe. Or did I get cut off? Did I get cut off? I can hear you, Bob. I can hear Joe. Joe, you lost your voice. He's just getting to the good part, too. I know. Okay. Can anybody hear me? Oh, there you are. Yes. You're there, you, there you're back. Okay. You All have right. to hold your hand up like this. Like, you know. I know. It's, <laughs> I got to adjust the rabbit ears. I don't know uh, where I cut <laughs> off, but the, uh, but yeah, so I thought that was one. You start at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And I thought that was one aspect of this that was interesting that, uh, legal tech is made for more productive lawyers, and that justifies this. The other half is what we were just talking about, actually, was what is the future of these high-income uh, associates in a world where technology is going to take over a lot of those rote tasks that we assign to first and second-year attorneys? Uh, does it lead to a world of kind of a backlash where they don't make that money, or is it actually going to be something that we figure out over the course of the next couple of years how they provide value within the context of AI. Uh, so that those were the musings that I had uh, as I thought about tech and uh, tech and money. I don't know if anybody has. Uh, 
Do you think the associates will really be will really be affected though? Because I mean, it seems like the ones that will really be affected will be like the contract attorneys or like the the temp attorneys or like the the e discovery lawyers and whatnot, or you know, the, the 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 ones on contract that they but they bring in to do the document review. I mean, I I feel like ultimately associates it's almost like their status symbols. It's like you know they'll be fine no matter what because they were chosen to be at this firm. You know to kind of to not just do the work but also be as like a representative. Be like, hey, look at all these guys from Harvard. We got look at all these people from. Columbia, we got look at all these bright minds that we have, and they'll come up with work for them. They like yeah. they always do, but like, yeah, I, I do kind of feel like, yeah, I mean, they'll be fine, but I mean, yeah, maybe maybe it'll change the nature of their job, and maybe you know there might be some financial pressure, but yeah, I, I feel like the ones that get that'll get that'll get hurt will be the ones who are there like on contract or like on, um, you know, doing doing well, the temp work or the doing doc review. And well, Victor, I think you're right, but it sort of depends on the you know the, the segment of the market that you're looking at too. I think because. You know, the big law firms, the, the ones that the M Law one hundred or M Law fifty, and they're always going to have work. There's always going to be tons of work because if it's a big important matter, that's who you go to. But when you start going down sort of the sort of the hierarchy of law firms and you start getting the mid level law firms or even smaller law firms, you know, that's that's where it could be could be a greater impact. maybe not even small one, but the mid sized law firms who who employ a lot of lawyers, um, particularly associates that do that kind of step work that generative AI can do. And they may, they may not need them anymore. Well, and there's going to be, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and then, then we have to start wondering about the, the training aspect. There's already an argument that it's ridiculous to, pay this much and bill this much for on-the-job training of associate, which is what the first couple of years are. Uh, obviously, I come from the litigation side of things, but transactional attorneys, like sitting around and drafting clauses is their whole their whole jam. And that's something that it strikes me AI is going to ultimately be really good about doing for them. Uh, it's going to be really good about scanning the 8 million agreements in the market and determining what the right language is. Uh, and that's, you know, how do you learn when the thing's doing it for you and you're not up at three in the morning turning a draft? But th so did I understand, I mean, is your basic premise that in fact technology has has warrants the this higher this higher compensation, not just because it makes lawyers more productive, but because it actually makes them better lawyers and deliver better that is that, deliver yeah. better results or whatever. I don't. That's a tough one. I don't know if I if I no, swallow okay. that or accept I that. I mean, I, I there's I mean there's a couple of sides to that. But one is you know we we've, we've talked about it. The, the old timers uh, like myself will talk about the fact that one of the one of the problems is we've you know we've lost the whole deliberative nature of of, of legal practice and the ability to sort of sit and reflect and think. And and I guess on one hand you can make the argument that maybe you don't need to deliberate as much because you can do the research more quickly and whatever else. But I, I do feel like there's a there's this tendency to try and give advice as quickly as possible or handle matters as quickly as possible that where where you do lose some of what you would get out of greater yeah. deliberation and there's also the whole thing like i mean just document automation like let's let's find the form we used before and do it again and adapt it and i don't i mean is that always the best way to to deliver legal services i don't know i, I i'm not sure maybe as the old timer on the call i feel like there, there's something to be said for the older slower ways of, of delivering legal services yeah I, I kind of agree with joe though bob i mean i 
I'm thinking back. Well, to you're a lot younger than me, Steve, so you don't. You wouldn't <laughs> yeah, know, right? Yeah. So I don't. I don't know anything anyway, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I think back when I was a younger warrior. I mean, I spent a lot of time in dusty warehouses looking at documents. I don't think I learned very much about being a lawyer from that. I mean, this was just, you know, about the only thing I learned is what a what a crappy job that was to do. So, you know, I mean, yeah. we're talking about people that are that are smart and uh, energetic, and I think, I mean, I think they they will use the tools and are using the tools and and have more time to have sort of that deliberation time to think about strategy and and those sorts of things. I mean, if you don't have to spend all your time paging through dusty volumes of documents someplace, you might have a little more time to think. Yeah, but is that's not that doesn't describe law big law associates though, does it? I mean they're not they're not doing the deliberation anyway. There's they're they're doing the production. They're doing the crank it out stuff. Well I I'll, oh, I always went I always go back to because it's one of my favorite stories. Uh when I started at Query, they still kind of fancied themselves generalists, even though we clearly all were like litigators and transit. We all had departments, but we pretended we didn't. So we all trained together. And I remember uh, a prominent corporate partner getting up and explaining that all your life you've been told that plagiarism is bad, but I want to be very clear plagiarism is your friend. Uh, and he was adamant that like, I, we have a bunch of knowledge that we've accumulated and I want you to use what we've done before. I don't want you going off road, whatever. Uh, and that stuck with me about like how transactional practice works. But like my friends who were in corporate, what they did was dig manually through everything in the document management system to find stuff. Uh, that's the sort of thing that now, uh, once you accept that plagiarism is your friend and you should be copying what we've done in the past, uh, AI is going to make that go a lot faster. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And just to the point, I think it was Vishal in the chat made the, made the point that older, slower way of delivery is not what clients want to pay for. I get that. I understand that. I'm just, I'm just kind of questioning the, 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 the proposition that perhaps the advice is somehow better or the work product is somehow better. I mean, I, I think in many cases it is, but across the board, I don't know. And whether it justifies the, that much higher pay to big law associates, I don't know. Uh, but who knows? Steve is back. That's good. Um, well, it's like what happens when you get your food too quickly at a restaurant, right? You were like, you're like, wait a minute, hold on, like why, why did it, why did it come here so quickly? So it's kind of like, yeah, this idea, of like, well, if it took, yeah, it's like it, the idea is like if it took, well, yeah, like the other day we got our we got our takeout, like I think within like ten minutes after we ordered it, we were like, hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, but I mean, so I guess there is that there is that idea of like that psychological you know, whatever that, yeah, if it took, if, if it, if, if it's really good, it probably takes longer to do it. Or, you know, if someone takes longer to do something, they may need a better job on it. Well, that's not necessarily true. It just, it just, it just means that they took longer on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, well, uh, there's the uh, there's the question about whether uh, technology makes associates worth more money. Then there's also the question of whether having a entirely technologically enabled de delivered law firm uh, is a viable business model. Perhaps I don't know. Is that is that at all a, a transition to what you have a, to talk about this week, Victor? I'll, 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 I'll allow it. 
Um, yeah, like, uh, so yeah, so, uh, well, actually this, 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 this is just a, um, uh, a pickup of a story on law.com, um, that, um, so it says two, two practice leaders at Fisher Broyles, which is a, you know, virtual law firm. Um, they announced that they are leaving the firm to announce details of a significant new venture shortly. And so, uh, law.com did some digging and they found that there is a, the two lawyers in question, like they, they registered, um, like their names, um, um, you know, with uh, uh, you know, of a new entity in Delaware, and so the so the the thing is that they're, they're going to make their own. They're they're basically creating their own shop, um, and you know, based on sources, they said that almost 140 Fisher Boroughs lawyers could be following them. So that seems like a pretty big defection. And and I remember, obviously, you know, this is this isn't you know, I mean, this isn't anything new. I mean, this happens all the time in the law firm world. But I remember like when when Fisher Boroughs first came up with their business model, like they're they're uh, I think they're they're all virtual. I think they have some physical locations, but you know they're they're really more for like just you know um, if they have to meet people or whatnot or whatnot. It's, it, it, all the lawyers are scattered all over the all you know, all over the place, and that was their big their big calling. Their, their big calling card was hey, you know we provide, provide flexibility. They, I think they also have a they also had a they also had an interesting business model where they they let partners keep um, I think eighty uh, percent of what up to eighty percent of what they bill, which is you know pretty much unheard of, um, and so. Um, you know, between 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 the the extra money and then also the um you know the the, the virtual model, you know I think we like, it was the idea was oh they're you know they're really far ahead uh, they're really far ahead of the curve and they have this really interesting business model and whatnot. But the flip side was well okay what if that causes some lawyers to maybe not necessarily feel loyal to the firm because you know they haven't you know they don't they don't they haven't developed they haven't been able to develop much of an identity together they don't have much of a well, you know, much of a shared culture they don't have much of a relationship with each other that doesn't take place on zoom and whatnot and what happens if then they decide hey you know what we can get a better deal if we go this way or if we start set up our own shop or if we do this and i think this is kind of like what we're seeing now it's like okay well now these lawyers clearly these lawyers at least clearly think that they can get a they, they can do better on their own and so i don't know if that's going to lead to like a mass exodus or anything i mean i'm, I'm sure they'll be i'm sure they'll be fine but 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 yeah i mean you never want to see that many lawyers leave at once i mean that that and that's always a red flag whenever whenever we're looking at uh law firm you know law firms that that go bust and so you know i mean i don't know if there's anything else going on but uh but just just yeah just just the idea that all, all these lawyers could be leaving you know, to start their own shop is, is definitely an eyebrow raiser and makes you kind of wonder like what's what, what's what's next i love the quote from law.com in the ABA journal story has it but asked when the firm was asked asked about this, the response was, as a leading AMLA 200 firm, we look forward with confidence to 2024 and providing our clients with all the world-class legal services they've come to expect from Fisher Broyles, which is a complete non-response to the question yeah. put to them. <laughs> I, I guess maybe they're hoping they can pick up more lawyers just, and I mean, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe you know, if, if, if more law firms start enforcing, you know, the return to work policies or whatnot, Maybe they're hoping that they can pick up more lawyers from disaffected lawyers from those firms. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's you never want to see that many people jump ship at once. And so I don't know what's going on. Yeah, like I think I think the whole distributed uh virtual law firm model, it makes sense and is is here to stay, especially in a nobody wants to go back to work kind of world. But there is something to be said for you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. When you when you base your whole thing on we don't, you, you kind of are your own boss and you get to do your own thing. 
uh, that means they can leave and go do their own thing somewhere else. Like there's there's a lot less holding you into the firm, which is both good and bad. I, I I'm not sure it's all that bad for Fisher Broyles. Uh, like obviously this is a hit, but I don't think anybody. I don't know. I, I think a lot of people are going to read the the relationship with Fisher the clients' relationships with Fisher Broyles is rarely with Fisher Broyles. It's with the lawyer under the Fisher Broyles umbrella that they happen to like. I know that's true of a lot of firms, but it's really true there uh, more than it is at a Cleary or a Scadden or something. Uh, so I think it'll be, I, I think they'll be okay. All right. Well, from uh, dysfunctional large firms, we can move to dysfunctional <laughs> small firms. Thanks to Steve Embry. I thought you were going to say we can move to the dysfunctional panelist. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Uh, yeah, I, I put in a story about uh, the survey that Smokeball did. Um, and the main, the interesting thing about it was it was primarily surveyed small law firms, firms that were of less than 30 employees. So you're really sort of getting down to the, to the smaller end of the market. Um, and, you know, you, you always have to be a little weary when you read these kind of surveys because, you know, you sometimes you can get the survey re results that you, you want to get that sort of justifies what you're doing. But uh, there were some interesting things here. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting was that 50% of the people, the lawyers they surveyed, didn't know whether their billings were went up last year or went down last year, which, I mean, I, I read that and go, how can that, how can that possibly, possibly be that you don't, you're in a business and you don't know if you went up or went down last year. And then the 30% of the, the firms they surveyed said that they had no idea what, what drove the growth that they had. 25 a quarter of them did not even have uh, uh, market marketing plans. So, I mean, I just was looking at this going, but that, that's really sort of sort of sort of weird. Um, and then they they queried the the uh, firms on on AI, um, and, and I was particularly intrigued by by these results. But what I don't know is if the questions were about AI or generative AI. The the report just said AI, but in any event. Uh, 50% of the, the people they surveyed believed that AI would transform their practice in the future. But then 83% of them had ethical concerns about AI, and, and another 83% were uneasy about using AI for research or contract analysis. And the thing that I sort of wondered about when I read that is if they asked them about AI and that many people said, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to use AI for research or contract analysis. I mean, they've sort of been doing that for a while. <laughs> and it sort of, sort of would reflect a misunderstanding of, uh, of the difference between AI and generative, generative AI, I think. But in any event, it was, you know, a lot of sort of interesting findings that a lot of the firms they surveyed were uh, interested in growing and hiring new people. But 70% of the firms, at least with, with more than three people, said, if, if you want to work for us, you have to be in the office full time, which, which is really kind of a disconnect in a lot of ways uh, because you've got a labor force that doesn't want to go to an office. 
you've got firms competing for that labor force. And then you have this many firms saying, but if you want to work for us, you're going to have to toe the line and be in here every day. And, you know, anecdotally, I've heard any number of lawyers from smaller firms say, oh, it's just so hard to get these lazy associates to come to work for us. They don't want to work and they want to stay home. And it, but it's, you know, sort of a, sort of a, sort of a disconnect there. Then the final thing that, that I didn't pick up in my report, but Cassandra Coyer did in hers is that it, it seemed to be that the personal injury firms were, were quicker to adopt the generative AI tools, or I guess AI tools is how, depending on how it's phrased than the other firms. And a lot of, you know, could be a lot of explanations for that, for that, but it could also be that if if you're surveying, well, at the smaller end of the market, if you're talking to a lawyer in a, in a personal injury firm, that's probably going to be a plaintiff's lawyer that works on a contingency fee. And it would make a lot of sense for them to want to use these tools because you know, every minute saved is a dollar earned, if you will. So um, anyway, I, I thought it was a, a pretty interesting report, mainly because it, it kind of looked at this smaller end of the market and you know, like like a lot of a lot of people that report on this stuff, we tend to focus on big law, and you know, we we have a, a whole different market market segment of small small firms and contingency fee lawyers that don't bill by the hour. And that data is interesting because the portion that interesting to me, the portion that you mentioned about interest in generative AI, but reticence about using it sort of supports my thesis, my hypothesis, if you will, that this that's why the guidance is important. Not because we really need it, but because it sort of rolls out the red carpet for adoption, uh, that then they can kind of wrap their arms around the uh, guidance and feel all safe and secure, um, even though they could have pulled it from other opinions that weren't specifically about AI or generative AI. So that's, that's interesting to me. And um, I love how all, I really like watching everybody's coming out with generative AI surveys and analysis, but, and normally I'd be like, I'm kind of sick of that. But as we know, it's like changing by the week. Like there's always this new thing happening. So every single data point because of how fast things are moving is super interesting to me. And um, I mentioned, I oversee our survey that's coming out and we include, I devoted a big section to generative AI stuff. So it's interesting to hear what other companies are finding from their surveys and comparing it to some of our findings, which are going to be coming out soon. But it's really interesting because it's just moving so fast that every data point really is useful rather than yeah. being too much. Well, and you know, that's a good point, Nikki, because this survey, it just came out, but it was it's back data, right? I mean, if I, I guess last year or done earlier this year. And uh, so I think you're exactly right. A lot of these responses when people say, you know, uh, what, 50, 83% were uneasy with using it with legal research. If that was, if you ask a lot of people that question January of this year, you get a completely different answer than what you're getting today. Uh, so yeah. that's I a just, good point. I just, I just wrote a couple of weeks ago about the Thomson Reuters small firm survey that they do every year, state of state of US small law firms. And that was done in August, the data was collected. Um, and that asked that had that was interesting on generative AI, because it, in their survey, 72% of small firm lawyers say they had say they have heard of generative AI, but have not used it. 
Uh, and another 10% said, I've heard of generative, I've not heard of generative AI or used it. So there you got basically 82% of small firm lawyers having not used generative AI uh, at all in their practices. Um, again, yeah. you know, it kind of begs the question of whether they even know what the hell generative AI what is. I, mean, I remember yeah. when, when it used to be when you asked lawyers, you know, have you ever used cloud software? And Nikki knows this well, <laughs> and, you know, and they'd say, no, never. And you'd say, well, are you using Dropbox? Oh yeah, I use Dropbox all the time. You know, it. I, I mean, they probably are using it to some extent and have no idea they're using it. But right. the other, I, it would also, that that Thomson Reuters one has been kind of funny because year after year, the the results almost never change. The, the, the stats have been very consistent in terms of the different questions they ask. This is the first year that it actually saw a change in which lawyers were sort of more productive in the sense that they were spending for the first time in the survey it showed they, an uptick in how many hours a day they spend practicing law versus doing administrative stuff, um, but not a huge uptick. Uh, it would it would be interesting uh, if if all if these different surveys of small firms or for that matter of large firms or corporate legal weren't we're in, they're all kind of a little bit apples and oranges. It's hard to kind of mm -hmm. line them right. all up and compare them and say, here's how this survey compares against this survey against this survey. Uh, and it would be, and you know, maybe that's what the ABA survey should be doing more or something is kind of helping us pull together some of these, these disparate, what seemed like disparate results sometimes from these different surveys and, and draw a more comprehensive picture of it. Well, well here's my issue, right? I mean, like, you know, um, First of all, I'm impressed that you got all these lawyers, not you, but like they got Smokeball got all these lawyers to admit, hey, we don't know, we don't know like whether we went up or down in our buildings. We don't know what drives our business. We don't know any of this stuff. Like I'm like, hey, I, kudos for being honest, I guess. But like, so so these people are gonna then use use technology, use cutting edge technology then to then <laughs> augment their practice. I'm not, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I buy that. Just this seems like they don't even know how their business works let alone how they're going to improve it um so uh, yeah I, I don't know but but yeah i mean it's obviously it's one of those things where it's like okay you know you know like like it's a good snapshot of where you know i guess the respondents of the, of the, of, the, of this of this survey are in terms of like you know their business development and like the, the state of their, their practices and whatnot but yeah i don't i don't i don't necessarily know if these if, 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 if this if this is if this is the audience that um you know, is going to be receptive to that kind of stuff. But who knows? Maybe, 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 maybe they'll want to learn about it. I, yeah, also I, th I thought it was kind of, oh, go ahead, Nikki, I'm sorry. Well, I also agree with what you just said, Victor, that it's hard to believe that they don't understand how their revenue one year compares to another year. Because when I was in a relatively small firm that had 20 lawyers, probably 40 total, 50 employees, I don't know. I assure you, everybody knew exactly what their billable hours were at the end of the year because that was where if you were an associate, you'd get sort of your commission. And that was how the partners knew if they'd made their cut for the year and we're gonna get a larger portion of the um, uh, profits. So I find it hard, I don't know what firm doesn't know from year to year, at least on a, as a personal, on a personal level as a lawyer, did my income go up or down? Like, did I make my commission or not? So that seems really weird to me. I mean, it almost sounds like you've got these solo lawyers who are just, maybe in a state where marijuana was just legalized to or smoke constantly and don't know what's <laughs> happening. I mean, it's kind of confusing. Some of those data. Yeah, well, you know, part of it too, maybe who, you know, who, who, who was surveyed? Like if you, if you go to a three or four person law firm and you ask 
the oldest partner there some of these questions, they may not know their answer, but some people, somebody in the firm probably does know the answer. Now, I would say that everybody in the firm, like you just described, Nikki, needs to be able to answer those kinds of questions from the senior partner to the beginning associate. You need to, you need to understand where your growth is and, and those sorts of things. But again, we're talking about firms that employ not, not 30 lawyers, but employ 30 people. So that's a pretty small shop that doesn't necessarily mean anything. The other thing I was going to say is I thought it was really kind of kind of interesting that where you have 50% of the people saying, oh, AI is going to transform our practice, but then you've got 83% saying, but there's all these ethical concerns. I mean, so like, how's it going to transform your practice if you can't like use it? It just doesn't, it did, that didn't, I couldn't. So it, I I kind of drew from that, I guess a couple of conclusions. One, there's just a lot of confusion and and misunderstanding of certain business principles that you know the bigger firms obviously know about. You got to have a marketing plan, right? And there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about generative AI and AI and where it's going and what it can do. So, I was just gonna. You raised a really good point, and Kate just touched on it in the in the chat in terms of who was surveyed. So when I do the our legal industry survey. I ask the people to let me know their position in the firm. And, you know, the people that are not, and, and this year we allowed a bunch of comments to some questions, but I don't usually do that. But sometimes one of the comments would be, I don't know, I'm not in a decision-making position in the firm. Right. So I don't have the answer to this, or I don't have the answer to that. And so I wonder if they included a lot of paralegals or associates in that who just don't know because that's right. not their job. So that's- Yeah, a I, was, I was just thinking somewhat ironically, if, if you went to- AMWA 50 firms and ask like a junior partner or a senior associate, well, did the firm make money last year or lose money? And they say probably wouldn't know either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's important for these surveys to lay out the demographics of, of who they're talking to and uh, how that breaks down and what size firms and what roles in the firms and, and all of that. Some surveys do better at, at that. Some some of them are, are really cursory in terms of what they at least what they tell what they reveal publicly about who exactly it is they're surveying, or sometimes even the numbers. Some of these surveys you look at, you know, sometimes some of these, not specifically not talking about this one per se, but sometimes you get these vendor surveys where they put out a big headline about you know ninety seven percent of lawyers do this or that, or and they look at what they surveyed and it was like fifty lawyers somewhere, you know, and it's like it's just like uh, really questionable. Uh, all right. Oh, and there's, there's everything is surveyed now, you know, <laughs> I mean, I can't, everybody we, we took a poll. How many surveys did you get today in your email box? I mean, it's like you're inundated with them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, anything else, anything else anybody wants to talk about today? Hearing nothing. Uh, I guess we can we can call it a little bit shorter today. Give you back a few minutes of your day, and uh, look forward to seeing you all back here next Friday for another recap of the week's news in legal tech and innovation. See you then. Have a good weekend, everyone. Good weekend, all. See ya.